Welcome and thanks for listening to the Franklin Road Baptist Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to listen. This podcast consists of the preaching and teaching from the pulpit of Franklin Road Baptist Church in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Our prayer is that what you hear from this podcast will bless and encourage your Christian life as you seek to follow Him. We strongly believe there is no substitute for being a part of a thriving local church. If you're in the Murfreesboro area, we'd love to have you join us any Sunday or Wednesday. But if you are enjoying this preaching from somewhere else, we want to encourage you to find a Bible preaching church where you can grow and enjoy the fellowship of other Christians. If you're listening to this podcast and have never accepted Christ as your Savior, we would love nothing more than to help show you how you can have your eternity settled and begin your relationship with God. Feel free to visit us in person or online at frbc.com for more information. Now let's see what God has for us from His Word today. We'll continue in our series that we've been in, in the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, working toward becoming unmovable. Uh, Obviously, society continues to move and continues to change, but God has called us as Christians to be unmovable. And so that's what we've really been walking through throughout this whole book. Um, So last Wednesday, uh, my dad was rushing out the door and he kind of knew that this trip was coming up. And so we were talking about uh, 1 Corinthians 7 and he said, for those of you who don't know, he calls me Bub, which has now been passed down to my son, who is also Bub or Bubs or whatever. And so he, he said, boy, pray for me tonight, Bub. It's going to be rough. He's like, 1 Corinthians 7. And, I was, and so I knew, and I was like, all right. And he goes, oh, speaking of that, can you, can you preach next week? He said, while well, I'm out. I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll, we'll get it. And so my wife slipped in late from dealing with the baby last Wednesday, and she sat down beside me, and, and I had my Bible out. And uh, she goes, where are we at? I said, 1 Corinthians 7. And I kind of went like that. And, uh, and she goes, what was that face for? I was like, phew, it's rough. And, I, and she goes, well, you have meat offered to idols next week. So she read her little, her little title at the top. And I said, yeah, but meat offered to idols is a credit to 1 Corinthians 7. If 1 Corinthians 7 would have fallen on my week, we'd have watched a Veggie Tales and, and went home. And so anyways... Um, so we are in 1 Corinthians 8, no veggie tales tonight. I think we can exposit this one, and, uh, and we'll, we'll let the Lord use this. And so 1 Corinthians chapter number 8, it is a very powerful passage. And sometimes, you know, the way that we read Scripture so often, I don't know that we really come to it culturally with the right context. Um, when you look at something like 1 Corinthians 7, it is something that still applies to 2021. Um, if not, we, we really could just watch a VeggieTales and go home. But there is application to what God has given us in His Word. And sometimes we miss the application because we're not willing to do the work to get there. And so 1 Corinthians chapter number 8, ultimately when you just boil it down and you get past it, um, maybe some of the stuff that you don't understand is in regards to personal liberty, to Christian liberty. And so that's what we're going to be talking tonight We're going to be talking about how to help others remain unmovable, helping others remain unmovable. And that's really what we see in 1 Corinthians chapter number 8. We're going to take the time to read the whole passage. It's only 13 verses. I won't ask you to stand since it is a little bit of a lengthy reading. But 1 Corinthians chapter number 8 verse 1 says this, Now as touching things offered unto idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. And if any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing yet as he ought to know. Which is, that's probably a lot of people's life verse, all right? If any man thinks that he knows anything, he doesn't know anything that he's supposed to know, all right? That, that, we could probably all claim that one, couldn't we? And so he says, continuing, verse number three. But if any man love God, the same is known of him. What a powerful phrase tucked right into the middle of this passage. Paul is really writing, and we'll get to this in just a second, but he's writing before he ever even touches the matter of personal liberty. These first three verses are laying a foundation or a perspective for us to view this topic through. And so he very clearly says, but if any man love God, the same is known of him. As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is none other God but one. 
For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many, but to us there is but one God, the Father of whom all things are, whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. Howbeit there is not in every man that knowledge. You ought to circle that phrase in your thinking. Okay, circle that phrase in your, in your, maybe your Bible. He says, this is what we believe, this is what we know, but there's n- some people who don't know that. There's some people who don't believe that. For some, with conscience of the idol unto this hour, eat it as a thing offered unto an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But meat commendeth us not to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worse. But take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. For if any man see thee which hast knowledge sit at meat in the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? And through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. But when ye sin so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. Sometimes I don't know that we believe that our personal and maybe biblical liberties can actually cross a line to where it becomes sin. Scripture teaches us that in this verse. We just assume, well, well my liberty doesn't affect anybody, or my, my personal liberty, who, what does it matter what I do with my life? Scripture actually clearly says in this verse that there is a line, and the line is clearly defined that when it affects the conscience or the Christian life of someone else, you've crossed a line to where what was not of sin is now of sin because you have hurt someone else in the body of Christ. And Paul comes to a conclusion here in verse number 13. Wherefore... If meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. I want you to go back up, and I want you to look at verse number 9. Verse number 9. Would you read that out loud together with me? Verse number 9, ready, begin. But take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. We're going to talk about personal liberty and really to kind of put it in the framework of what we've been walking through in 1 Corinthians 8 or or in really the whole book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to title it and really walk through how to help others remain unmovable. Helping others remain unmovable. You see, the Christian life can be lived on an island, but it's not. The Christian life is lived within the body of Christ. The Christian life is lived with those around you, with other brothers and sisters. And society has taught us that our life, this life that we live, is all about me or my, and not about we and us. And can I just be very honest with you? Many of the problems that plague Christianity and the church, capital C, today, are not personal problems. They're personal problems that have influenced or affected the church as a whole. We've put too much emphasis on how does this make me feel, how does this meet my needs, how does this work for me, and not how does this work or meet the needs of the body of Christ. Because when the body is well-nourished, the individuals will also be well-nourished. And so with that in mind, let's look at helping others remain unmovable. Let's pray, and we'll ask the Lord to help us. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you are a wise enough and omniscient enough God to where you know how we tend to be selfish as Christians and as individuals. And so God, you in your wisdom gave us 1 Corinthians chapter number 8 that we can take and that we can apply to our lives and apply to maybe some areas that may not be wrong, but Lord, they're not wise and they're not helping those beside of us. They're not helping the team succeed, they're only helping me succeed. And so God, I ask you would help us tonight as we look through your word, as we break down this passage, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to listen with your spirit's fullness. May I speak with your spirit's fullness, and may we walk out of here identifying areas of our life that we are hurting the overall team of Christ. And Lord, may we be willing to sacrifice some of our own personal needs so that we can help the body of Christ with its needs. In your name we pray, amen. 
Anytime you talk about Christian liberty, anytime you talk about spiritual liberty, obviously there's a lot of uh, maybe discrepancies. There's different people who believe different ways. There's people who just assume that, well, I'm saved, and so now I have the liberty to go and do whatever I want to do. And so we've got a quick little video that is, uh, is pretty cute, to be honest with you, that I think will help demonstrate that. We're going to pray really hard that it works. And so I don't know if So, for many of you, for many of Christians in churches today, that is the way that we view Christian liberty. God says maybe don't touch it, or God says maybe it's not wise, and, and we look to a brother or a sister in Christ, and we get those big eyes and kind of, did you see the little boy? When, okay? I'll do it if you do it, right? It's Christian liberty. If I do it and you do it, that's kind of the way that we respond. And, and sometimes we even get that little feeling. My favorite part of the video is when that little boy pops in the second one and he kind of is like, oh, this is, this is good. Like, I, I like this. And sometimes as Christians, when we look at maybe the boundaries or, or the principles of the Christian life, we step back and we kind of get a little bit more joy out of living outside in our personal liberty, and I want you to listen to this, than we do our love for Christ. God never sent his son to die on a cross so that your personal liberty brings you more joy than his sacrifice of his son. I want to repeat that because I think that sometimes maybe biblical doctrinal statements like that just fly right over our head. God never sent his son so that your joy comes more from your personal liberty than it does your love for Christ and his son. And sometimes what we are guilty of doing is we, we get saved and, and the Christian life is great when everything's fresh and everything's new and we're revived in our spirit and we're moving forward. But at the same time, there comes a point to where, well, that just kind of has become old. And so now I'm going to have to find a way to indulge myself in maybe the world or, or maybe it's not even something sinful. Maybe I've even got scripture to back up what I believe. But ultimately, I am finding my joy and what the Christian life has permitted me to do rather than finding joy in what Jesus and what God get, did for me through salvation. And we've missed it. And here's what I want you to see tonight, is that when you live that life, I would like to, like to believe and like to maybe even tell you that it only affects you. But the truth is, is that it does not only affect you. Because you are part of a body. The same way that maybe one small organ of your body that has been poisoned or maybe one small cut or scratch on, a, on a, an appendage of your finger or on, on maybe a part of your body, if it gets infected, if it becomes poisoned, it influences the whole body. The same way that your personal liberty, your personal maybe failure, your personal belief and your personal sin or whatever that might not bother you can influence others around you. I read a study recently that is called, and I'm going to have to read the title of it because it sounds even way smarter than the actual study, all right? But the study was titled Nor Neural, uh, that's a fun word, all right? Consequences of Religious Belief on Self-Referential Processing. Okay, that's a big title. Here's what it found. It found that non-Christians use a different part of their brain to evaluate themselves than Christians do. For those of you that are wondering, it's the ventral medial prefrontal cortex. I want you to listen. While Christians used a different part of their brain to evaluate themselves... They use the dorsal medial prefrontal cortex, ironically, and I want you to see this, 
Only the Christians use the same part of their brain to evaluate themselves as what they do others. The same perspective and the same part of their brain that was triggered when they looked at others is the same part of their brain that they used when they looked at themselves. And here's what this researcher said. This is not Joel's word. This is the researcher's. They concluded that Christians used a Jesus-type reference point to evaluate themselves and others. Rather than evaluating themselves selfishly, they were actually able to see themselves and others the way that God sees them. UCLA researcher Jeff Schwartz said this about the study. It is one of the most important scientific studies that has been published in the last decade. Prayer, meditation, confession, and Christian disciplines that are taught actually work. Hmm, what a novel idea, right? The principles of the Christian life have the power to rewire the brain that can make it less selfish and self-referential. When you look at the world today, I'm not going to try to re- name those parts of the brain, but here's what I want you to think about. What part of the brain do you think that social media triggers? What part of the brain do you think that every commercial that crosses your TV triggers? What part of the brain do you think that the news triggers? What part of the brain do you think that the newspaper triggers? What part of the brain do you think that maybe some of the addictions and some of the habits that we build ourselves into, what part of the brain do you think that it triggers? Does it trigger the selfish side of the brain or the selfless side of the brain? UCLA continued their study on this topic and they actually just came out with another study that says if that prefrontal cortex is triggered long enough, they can actually make people become more selfish and less giving to where they only focus on their needs and not on the needs of others. And just so you don't think that this is a 2021 problem, we come to 1 Corinthians chapter number 8 where Paul is dealing with the very same thing. He says, stop basing your Christianity off of what you need and start basing your Christianity off of what the body of Christ needs, off of what the church needs. Which brings us to this conclusion before we dive into these three steps. In the Christian life, sometimes it is worth sacrificing a little of ourselves and our own personal liberties to keep another Christian where God has called them to be. Sometimes it's worth me giving up a little bit so that you can stay where God has called you to be. Sometimes it's worth me sacrificing myself so that I can keep you in the place that God is working in your heart. Sometimes it's worth me not indulging in something that I feel like is okay so that I can help you as a brother or sister in Christ stay in the place that God has called you to be. And without a show of hands, because I think that we all should let the Holy Spirit answer this for us, how many Christians rarely live the Christian life that way? Do you live the Christian life that way? Do you base your decisions in this life, whether, whether right or wrong, do you base them off of not how they only influence you, but how they influence those around you? especially those that you will spend eternity with. And so Paul gives us three steps in this passage to help us help others remain unmovable. And the first one is this. He says, develop a loving paradigm. Develop a loving paradigm. You see this in verses 1 through 3. He says, now as touching things offered unto idols, we know that we have all knowledge, okay? The Corinthian church was actually known for its knowledge. Can you imagine being introduced to a faith that is so countercultural to your society that really you're starting from scratch? Many of you, you sit in a church each and every Sunday and you've almost been handed a cultural form of Christianity, meaning you probably knew that Jesus, who Jesus was before you knew who Santa Claus was. And that's okay. That's probably a good thing, all right? But you have heard Jesus, you've heard God. If you grew up in a Christian home, you've been confronted with church, and, and that was kind of how you have been raised. But the Corinthian church was not like that. In fact, their view of religion was completely the opposite. 
They had been raised to believe in idols. They, they had, many of them had worshipped idols. Many of them had, parta- had taken, play, taken part in the idol worship in the, the palace and in the temples and all of the areas that they could do that. Cor- Corinth was known for its idol worship. And he says, you know everything that there is to know. So this church is now beginning to pride themselves on all that they know about Scripture and all that they know about doctrine and all that they know about the Bible. And he said this, knowledge puffeth up, but I want you to see at the end of the verse, he says, but charity edifieth. I want you to think for just a second through Scripture for those of you who know it well. Is there any command in Scripture that commands us to puff up the believers around us? Is there a command in Scripture for us to edify the believers around us? And many times what we try to do is we try to edify with knowledge, but according to this passage, only charity, only love is what edifies. And so he says, you're not going to be able to come at this thing. You're not going to be able to help those around you by just puffing up. You're not going to be able to go at this with logic. You're not going to be able to go at this with just all of your doctrine, all of your verses. You're going to have to enter love into the picture. How many of you have children that are very much the opposite of each other? Anybody? You have children that are opposites of each other? My children could not be more the opposite of each other, all right? Braxton is a very logical, thinking person. You know, he can walk you through stuff. I, I have noticed that, and possibly it's part of being a speaker and a preacher or whatever, but I've noticed even when I talk to something, me and my wife will be talking about going on a trip, and I'll say, first of all, number one, we need to do this. Secondly, number two, we need to do this. Braxton's kind of the same way. He says, Dad, first, this is what happened. Secondly, this is what happened. Third, this is what happened. He's holding his little fingers up. Baylor is just this emotional roller coaster, okay? Like you have to look at her and you've got to kind of get her to land her feet back on earth and look at her and just be, Baylor, I love you. And you spend the first five minutes of the conversation trying to say, Baylor, you're okay. You're not going to die. Like this is, this is not life or death right now. Braxton, on the other hand, like we've always said that anytime you correct him, like you've got to be a lawyer. Like you've got, you've got to have your court case ready because you know he's going to defend himself. Like, Dad, this is this, this is this, and it's, oh my goodness, okay? And what Paul is saying here is that just how you, just the same way that you parent your children differently, you're going to have to handle these younger and weaker Christians differently as well. You're not going to be able to come at them just with logic and with, well, this is what it says, and you're crazy for believing this, and you're, you're stupid for believing this. Some, I love sometimes the way that social media works. When someone actually outsmarts someone, respond, they revert back to like kindergarten smarts, Right? Like someone argues something and someone argues something back and they're the ones that's right and it's like, well, you're stupid. And it's like, are you serious? Like, that's what we're going to revert back to? And Paul, what Paul is saying is you're not going to be able to handle this with just knowledge because knowledge puffs up. I want you to remember this from the passage is that sometimes what we are guilty of is we're guilty of making Christians swell their heads rather than enlarge their hearts. We're guilty of making some Christians be able to give you letter A, sub point one, three through four, A, B, C, D, E, point one of everything of why they do what they do, and we never enter love into the picture. Which might I remind you in just a few short passages that Paul is getting ready to write the chapter that we call the love chapter. And you can go and read for yourself or go and look at the sign on the wall of your house that says what charity does. The charity suffereth long, it's kind, it beareth all things. And many times what we do is we want to confront and help others in a knowledgeable way rather than in a loving way. And then he says this in verse number two, and if any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing yet as he ought to know. But if any man love God, the same is known by him. Before we move to the second step, I want to ask you this one question. Will you be characterized by your love for God or your liberty for yourself? Will you be characterized by your love for God or your liberty for yourself? Can I encourage you? Sometimes when you're faced with a decision or you're faced with maybe an opportunity or a crossroads in your life, one of the things that I, I don't know that this is a proper term or, or I'm sure there's a better name for it out there, is I like to do what I call the end game test. What's this going to look like at the end? Scripture teaches us to consider the end of a thing. 
And sometimes when you are in ministry work, you have the opportunity to be around a lot of funerals, unfortunately. You know what's always amazing to me? It's always amazing to me what people say at a funeral. And sometimes what I like to step back and look at is, is this decision or is this thing that I'm maybe stressed about or that I'm frustrated about, is it going to matter when my family and friends are gathered around me? And I can tell you that something that very few people are going to stand up and talk about at someone's funeral is their liberty. Never heard someone stand up and say, you know what, if this person taught me nothing else, they sure taught me how to have liberty in the Christian life. But I've heard a lot of people stand up and through tears say, if this person taught me anything, it was that how to love God and I watched their love for God. I watched them demonstrate their love for God to me. I watched them show my mom or, or my grandma their, how much they loved them and how much Christ loved them. And so will you be characterized by your love for God or your liberty for yourself? He says in verse number three, but if any man love God, the same is known of him. So first of all, develop a loving paradigm. Secondly, is this, reinforce a biblical truth. Reinforce a biblical truth. You've got to remember who Paul is writing to. These are in, this is in verses 4 through 8. Paul is writing to this group of people that he just said, knowledge puffs up. But yet he, doesn't, he still takes the time to remind them this is what is true. In verses 4 through 8, he says an almost hilarious phrase. I love how blunt he is sometimes. But he says in verse number 4, As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered and sacrificed to idol, look at the last phrase. We know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is none other God but one. He didn't really mince his words there. He took an opportunity to teach these Christians and to reinforce a biblical truth. He says, here's the perspective, here's the paradigm that we're going to, these are the glasses that we're going to put on when we look at this matter of Christian liberty. He says, we're going to look at it in a loving, Christ-like way, not in a humanistic, knowledge-filled way. But then he says this, just in case you're wondering where we stand on all this, an idol is nothing in the world. There's no other God but one. There's many that are called gods, and you know that, and there's many lords in verse number five. But then he says this, but to us there is but one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we are in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ by whom we are, or whom are all things, and we by him. So he's confirming God, and he's confirming Jesus Christ, and he's reinforcing that biblical truth. He's reviewing it. Howbeit there is not every man that hath that knowledge. He takes the opportunity to reinforce this truth of you believe God, we know that an idol is nothing, but he tucks a little truth in there that I'll be honest, that a church like ours can sometimes so often forget. He says, howbeit. He says, these are all things that you know. An idol is nothing. There's one true God. We're here because of Jesus Christ. We're here because God created us. He says, how be it? There are some that have not that truth. And sometimes in the current modern day church, we're good at reinforcing the truths that we're good at, aren't we? We're good at, there's one God. There's one Savior, Jesus Christ. He came to die for everyone. Man, idols, are, those are a waste of time. We don't believe in idols. We're good at reinforcing all of the truths that we're good at. But sometimes we're not very good at knowing how to handle truths that actually make us change. And he gives a truth right there that is a wake-up call. He says, how be it? There's some around you, they don't believe that. Corinth was a church that was growing rapidly. Corinth was a church where people had been changed. Corinth was a church with an incredible testimony when you think about that these people were idol worshipers and now they're Christ worshipers. And he says, there's still some people in Corinth who aren't where you're at yet. 
And so don't just take your eyes off of them and just say, well, good, we're saved. Guess, hey, hey, the gang's all here. We're all right. He says there's some that have not that knowledge. And then he says this, for some with conscience of the idol unto this hour, eat it as a thing offered unto an idol. And their conscience being weak is defiled. But meat commendeth us not to God. For neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worse. So he says this, He reinforces the biblical truth. He reminds them that there are those among them who are not maybe at the same point that they are, which leads us to the third step, and that is this. Make a selfless decision. Make a selfless decision. He says in verse number 9 all the way down through 13 when he closes with his personal standard and his personal belief, He says this, but take heed lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. For if any man man see thee which hast knowledge sit at meat in the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? And through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. But when ye so sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. Wherefore, If meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. Let me give you four quick questions that you can ask yourself in making this decision in regards to personal liberty, straight out of the passage. First of all, does it cause others to stumble? Does it cause others to stumble? When you're stepping back and when you're looking at something that you say, well, this isn't sin, this isn't wrong, there's, there's nothing in Scripture that, that I can find that says that this is what I should or should not do, and so I guess I'm just going to make this decision. Let's walk through this. Because remember, as a Christian, this decision does not just affect you. So does it cause others to stumble? Secondly, does it cause others to boldly sin, or if you want to put it this way, to boldly fail? He says in verse number 10, he says, For if any man see thee which hast knowledge sit at meat in the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? He already said that eating something that is offered to idols is not a sin. But here's what messes us up as Christians. Is when we embolden someone's conscience with something that is safe for us that could potentially harm them. If you've ever been around a fire, sometimes as an adult, you are more comfortable around a fire than your children. And so you can, you'll get a little closer, you'll poke and you'll prod a little bit more. You know which side the wind is blowing on, so you know to kind of get away from the smoke. You maybe know where the hose is, and so you can, you can maybe have a little bit more of an enjoyable time around a fire than your children who might be uncomfortable with it. But you poke and prod around long enough in a safe way, and they watch you, their habits will begin to reflect you, and they may not be as knowledgeable. Guess who gets burnt? It's not you, it's the child. What may be safe for you may be detrimental to someone else's Christian life. Which is why what you post and talk about on social media matters which is why what you, where you go and what you talk about with others matters, which is why what you watch and what you find humor in matters. Because an infection or a poison in the body doesn't just influence that one part. It's not isolated. It influences the whole body and the whole being. And so does it cause others to stumble? Does it cause others to boldly sin? Thirdly, does it cause others to be destroyed? I had to go and look this up because I just couldn't even believe kind of the wording that was there. So I kind of went back and I had to look at this word. Look at verse number 11. It says, And through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish. We look at that word and we see it as maybe death or extinction or, or that he's done. And so he says, 
will you do this? And basically, in our framework and in the way that we see that word, kill someone. And I thought, man, that's, that's a little much. But if you go and you look up some of the definitions of perish, one of them, and I want you to, this is so not the way that we think, okay? One of them is to render useless. One of them is to be deemed unavailable. And the Christian liberty of some has caused many Christians to be deemed unavailable. It has rendered them useless to the point to now because of what so-and-so permitted in their life, I am no longer ready and available for the Lord to use me in my life. So does it cause others to be destroyed in their Christian life? And then lastly is this, does it cause me to sin? You say, but I thought personal liberty was about matters that were not sin. You're right. Look at verse number 12. But when ye so sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. One of the failures of modern day Christianity is that by downplaying sin, we don't realize that we've actually downplayed sin against Christ. Meaning this, that when we step back and we look at sin, it's just, oh, well, this is just maybe a little flub up. It didn't hurt anybody. My spouse doesn't know. My kids don't know. If you have a sin that no one knows about, if you have a secret sin, if you have a private sin that no one knows about, doesn't mean that it didn't hurt anybody. It just means that you haven't recognized who it ultimately hurt. Because sin in any form, whether known or unknown, is against Christ. And until you recognize that sin actually grieves God more than it even grieves those around you, then according to Scripture, sin will not become exceedingly sinful as Scripture teaches us to see sin. You'll just see it as, well, I guess if I didn't get caught, we're good. But sin of any kind is ultimately against Christ. And what he says and closes out in this passage is this. He says that if you wound the conscience of a brother, you've sinned, you've crossed a line now to where you've sinned against them. And he says you've ultimately sinned against Christ. As we close, I had the opportunity when uh, I first came on staff to kind of to, uh, to help coach some basketball teams and to uh, eventually become a head coach. My record does not speak well of itself, so um, we're just going to keep moving past that part, all right? One of the things that I found was just the importance of having people who wanted to keep the team in the right position. It was always great when the five guys that you put on the court were the hardest workers in practice. It was always great when they were willing to maybe give up themselves a little bit. And you know, as a coach, you try to encourage that. One of the things that we would do a lot is we would have someone come out and shoot free throws, and if they made it, everybody didn't have to run. If they missed it, then everybody had to run. And so you're kind of trying to encourage that, that pressure and that, that them leading and them doing what's right. But it was always amazing when you had some guys who were willing to step to the front and who were willing in some ways to almost outwork others. They were willing to give a little bit more. They were willing to maybe go the extra mile and work harder. They were the ones that were wanting to shoot more. They were the ones that were wanting to do one more drill. Or they were the ones that were bugging you to stay with them in the gym until 8.50. Or they were the ones that were coming to you as soon as the season ended. And they said, you know what? What can I do to get better? What's a workout plan? What's this? And sometimes as a coach, you would step back and you would look at the players on the team. And you would think to yourself, I wish I had 15 guys like this guy. But there were some teams that you would coach 
And you would step back and you would look at them and you would kind of look across the, the perspective and you would think to yourself, wow, we're exactly where we should be for how little we're giving. We're so invested in ourself. One of the things that irked the snot out of me, I don't know if that's kind or not, was when after a game maybe we lost, already not in a great place as a coach after you lose, you'd have a player come up and ask you, how many points did I have? I can remember I wanted to look at him and say, any that you had, I just took them all away and gave them to somebody else. Because that's not what matters. And sometimes as Christians, here's what we tend to do. We look at something like what we've experienced over the last year, year and a half. We look at the church as a whole. We look at Christianity as a whole. And we're the player on the team who's working the least. If you ever ran suicides or one of the things where you had to go and you had to touch the line, I can remember sometimes as a coach, and I wasn't, I wasn't strong or overbearing or anything, but I would stand at a certain line and I would see how many of those 15 guys actually went to the line. It says a lot about their personality. If there was a guy that was trying to win and make himself look good, if this was the line, I could always see he'd get just right to it and touch it. But sometimes you could see who the leaders were, or at least the clumsy ones, who were five feet past it. Because they were willing to maybe take the extra step. They weren't worried about what the finish line looked like. They were worried about what their character looked like. They were willing to give more and make themselves better. And sometimes as Christians, we're guilty of skimping on the line, doing as little as possible. Well, it wasn't wrong. I touched it. You did. Congratulations. But you didn't do anything for your team. You didn't get better. You didn't work harder. You didn't sacrifice anything. You made yourself look good on that end, and that reflects on the team eventually. And right now, there's too many Christians that are playing solo ball rather than team ball. I had a coach all the time that would tell one of the guys on our team, quit playing me ball and start playing team ball. And sometimes as Christians, we need that little jar to where we say, I'm going to stop playing me ball, start playing team and we ball. Because my personal liberty, what I'm allowed to do, if it's hurting those around me, what good is it doing? If the things that I'm posting or the things that I'm involved in are hurting someone else that I call a brother and sister in Christ, what good is it? Of what benefit is it? Will I be known by my liberty or will I be known by my love? Will I step back and recognize that there are some around me who have not the knowledge of God? What would happen tomorrow if you were confronted with someone who did not believe the way that you did politically and they came and they asked you for the gospel? Some of you aren't going to like this statement, but you do realize that you can flip a Democrat to a Republican and a Republican can still burn in hell. There's some who have not the knowledge of God. And one of these days, we will not answer for those that we changed their minds about something. We won't answer for those who maybe found something out that we shared on social media. We won't answer. I want you to listen to this because it's what the Bible says. We won't answer for who we made laugh because of what we shared, because of what we talked about. We will answer for where those around us will spend eternity. And unfortunately, as a church, 
We've gotten so sidetracked trying to convince people of everything but that Jesus Christ came and died on a cross for their sin so that they can have eternity in heaven and have a relationship with God here on this earth. Look at what you talked about this week. Look at your hours this week. Look at where you spent them. Did it draw others closer to Christ? Or did it push some of your brothers and sisters away? I love sports. The other night, my, my team that I've cheered for since I was a little kid, the Braves, won the World Series. I tried to talk Justin Pearson into doing the tomahawk chop at the beginning of the service, and he wouldn't do it. So it was a stumbling block, all right? The Braves won, and I don't talk a lot about sports, and here's why on my social media. Because it's not my idol. I'm not trying to change anyone's team. I'm not trying to change who you root for. Some of you need to change who you root for, but I'm not trying to change it. And here's why. Because if I change who you cheer for and you die and spend eternity in hell, what good did I do? If I changed what you believe about whatever scenario is out there in the world, a thousand different things, if I change that and I've never once talked to you about who Jesus Christ is, why fight for religious liberty to not share the gospel? Why do we need more freedom to sit in a church chair? If we're not going to do anything with what's been handed up, and I would very well argue that probably the reason we're in the state that we're in as a country is because we didn't do our job with the freedom we had been given. And I know this has maybe gone from personal liberty to personal Holy Spirit working, okay? But I want you to see this. Because sometimes we don't do a very good job of applying Scripture. And what Paul said was this. He says, let's view this lovingly. Some of you, you have so many bullets for your knowledge gun, and yet you have no love. And what did Paul say later on, 1 Corinthians 13? That if you have not charity, you have nothing. Let's balance knowledge with love. Let's have a loving paradigm. Let's reinforce the truth. If there's someone around you that believes like you believe, guess what? That's not an option for you to keep digging until you find something you disagree on, okay? Sometimes we're like, are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. Are you a Baptist? Yeah, I'm a Baptist. Are you a, a Southern Independent Fundamental Baptist? Yeah, I'm a Southern Independent Fundamental Baptist. Do, do you like this? Do you like this? Yeah, but you know what? I like Southern Gospel. <laughs> Heretic. And so we're really good at digging until we find something we disagree with. Reinforce the truth. If Scripture's strong and heavy on it, let's be strong and heavy on it. Let's let Scripture divide the lines. But then thirdly, let's make a personal decision. Let's make a personal, selfless decision. Paul gives us an illustration as he closes in verse number 13. He gives all of this big talk. You know what? Sometimes what we're really good at is we're really talking a big talk and living a weak life. And it's almost like the Holy Spirit prompts him and kind of nudges him and says, hey, Paul, tell him about you. I don't think Paul was an arrogant person. I don't think Paul was writing just so that he looked good. The Holy Spirit inspired him to write verse number 13. And so he says this, as for me, if meat offends my brother, he says, until eternity, I'm not going to partake in it. And tonight, here's the call for us as Christians and as church members of Franklin Road Baptist Church from 1 Corinthians chapter number 8. 
Let's help someone else stay unmovable. Let's help someone else stay where God has put them. Let's help someone else find the glorious light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's become a little more selfless and a little less selfish. Let's be a good teammate. Let's be willing to sacrifice ourselves. Let's be willing to put our guts on the line for the good of the team and not just for the good of ourselves. Let's stop playing me ball and start playing we in team ball. With every head bowed and every eye closed, we'll pray and we'll be done. As we bow our heads and close our eyes, I would encourage some of you to maybe find a spot there in your seat. The piano will begin to play in just a second. Maybe find a spot there in your seat or around the altar and just say this. Maybe you, have, maybe you haven't taken advantage of personal liberty. Praise the Lord. And keep after it. Keep down the path that you're going on. But maybe you've gotten wrapped up in some things that you've, and you've forgotten that there are some who have not the knowledge of God. Maybe as a result of some of your life decisions and some of the things that you have broadcasted well, that it's causing others to sin, to be emboldened to sin. Maybe it's causing others to be rendered useless. Maybe it's causing others or maybe causing even you to sin against those around you and even Jesus Christ. And so as the piano begins to play and as we stand, I'm going to encourage you, I know Wednesday nights isn't really a come forward time, but I'm going to encourage you as we stand maybe to find a spot there in your seat. Find a spot around this altar. Just say, Lord, this, I want to give you a, I want to view this through a loving perspective. I want to reinforce truth to those around me. Ultimately, I want to make a selfless decision. I want to stop viewing this thing and making it all about me and start viewing it and making it all about Christ and others. Your mind is under attack daily to become more selfish. There's a reason why Amazon gives you a wish list. There's a reason why your mailbox is probably full of Christmas catalogs. Because there's a lot of things out there that a lot of people think that they need. We're becoming more about me than we are about we. I'll give you a couple minutes there. Spend time in prayer. If you're here tonight and you don't know for sure that you're on your way to heaven, we'll have someone at the end of each aisle. If you're here and you'd like to join, become a member of our church, been saved and baptized, we would love to, love to welcome you into our church congregation. If you have any decisions or any questions you'd like to ask, there'll be someone here at the front. You can take a couple minutes to talk to God.